the rim country. We came up because of a, a business opportunity, and uh, and we were really excited to be able to move up here. I mean, just the thought of being able to to leave the valley, to leave Phoenix, and the congestion and the heat and the big city, and to be able to move to a, a nice little mountain town where we are close to the outdoor activities that that we enjoy was such a a great blessing to us and so we were thrilled with that and we really enjoyed being able to live up here however about two years after we moved up here uh, my boss decided he he didn't want to keep the business up here and so he was going to close up the business and go back down to the valley and he was going to open some new some new stores down on the west side of burgeoning area down on the west side of phoenix and he said i'm going to put you in charge of of that area of opening up that area for me and so that's what we're going to do and i have to admit to you we weren't going back to phoenix I, I think my exact words was, we're not going back to Egypt. <laughs> I mean, why? Why would we? we? We are in a place we enjoy. This is the type of a community we want to be involved in. We had friends. We, we had enough friends now. We could probably make a living up here. There was just no reason to turn around and go back. And so as we consider... The book of Galatians, chapter 4, Paul is dealing to a much, to that same principle, but to a much greater important element, and that is he's dealing with individuals who are, who have come out of bondage to paganism, and they are ready to go back to another kind of bondage. And so, in order for us to understand Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, we should, let me give you a little bit of a review of where we've, where we have been. And what Paul has said, especially what we saw last week in verses 1 through 7, what we saw was, Paul was saying that by the power of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, slaves have been transformed into children of God's family. And not only have they been made into children of God's family, but they've been made heirs of all of the promises of God. And so this redemption, this purchasing out of slavery, and not only purchasing out of slavery, but this adoption into the family of God, and not only this adoption into the family of God, but being made heirs of all the promises of God, that's what's been going on. And this redemption, adoption, and inheritance are secured, Paul informs us. That this adoption and this redemption, adoption and inheritance are secured apart from any meritorious work. That is, it is the work of God, and, and as we've been seeing, it is not only the work of Jesus Christ, it is the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to bring about our redemption, to bring about our adoption, to bring about our um, inheritance. And all of this has been done not because the Galatians were good enough or deserved it or some foreseen faith was was applied to them, but rather because of God's merciful grace upon them. And now, as we come to Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, we see Pastor Paul, and we'll see Paul as a pastor, especially next week. But we now begin to see the pastoral side of Paul, and he's pleading with the Galatians to remain in God's household and not return back to the slavery of merit-based salvation. Because, see, Paul came in and he preached the gospel. 
and the people responded to the gospel of grace. And then after, after Paul and Barnabas left, some liars, false teachers came in and began teaching that, well, you know, Paul didn't quite get it right. Paul did a good job, but he didn't quite tell you the whole story. And they, the false teachers, began to say, what you really need to do is, uh, in order to truly be a Christian, in order to be loved by God, there are some things you need to do, do first. And once you do these acts, these ceremonial or ritualistic acts, then the redemption of Christ can be applied to you. And, and they were tempted by this. And it makes no sense. But they were tempted by this. And Paul is now writing to, to it, pleading with them. Don't go back to that. You came out of one form of slavery. Don't go back to another form of slavery. The gospel has set you free. And so remain in the truth of the gospel. So that's kind of where we've been. And that's where I, I hope to go today. So let's look at our text. In fact, I'm just going to go ahead and read from chapter 4, verse 1, uh, all the way through verse 11. And so Paul goes like this. He says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However... At that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those things which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored among you in vain. And so Paul now continues on with this this issue of pleading with the Galatians not to return to bondage and, and, he, and he appeals to their past he says now I, at that time at a particular time there was a time in the past when you when you did not know God and you were enslaved to things that by nature are no gods the, the Galatian church were prior to the gospel coming to them were would have followed the pantheon of Roman deities and they would have worshipped whatever Roman deities were were put forth and perhaps there were idols, perhaps there were images perhaps there were um, things in nature by, that they worshipped and, and Paul calls these things he says, well we might call these things gods, they are really by nature not gods and we should understand that there are a lot of things that we can deify. There are a lot of things that we can lift up and call a God. In fact, we can fall down before a tree and say, You are my God. Or we can fall down before um, some item or some, some position and call it a God. But it is not by nature a God. There is only one God who is God by nature. And that is the God who is revealed in Scripture. Um, it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is the God who 
who put on flesh and dwelt among us. There is only one God. And while we might worship, a little, people might worship a lot of different things and call it a God, it is not by nature a God. You can fall down before a tree and say, my God, but it's, I'm going to just break this to you. It's just a tree. It can't hear you. It can't respond to you. It cannot save you. It can do nothing for you. Well, it can give you shade, which is nice, and perhaps fruit. There are some things it can do for you, but it can do nothing for you of eternal value. It is not a God. And the, the, the Galatian believers were worshiping these things that they called gods, but they were not by nature, uh, they were not by nature gods. In fact, Paul deals with this to the Corinthian church in First uh, Corinthians. Uh, chapter 8 verse 5 I think I have it up there yes it says, for although there are many so called go- back up there we go for although there may be uh, so called gods in heaven or on earth as indeed there are many quote gods and many quote lords yet for us there is one God the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom we are all, who are all things and through whom we exist and so There is only one God. A lot of things we can call gods. But there is, by nature, only one God. Now, in chapter 10, verse 20, Paul actually calls these non-gods, he actually calls them demons. He says, it's actually demonic what you're doing. So think about that. So, Paul is saying, here's the thing. There was a time when you worshipped these false gods. That you had not known the true God, but rather you you were enslaved to these non-gods. In other words, they served what they thought were divine, but they were only lifeless idols. In fact, Paul also in his in, in the in his letter to the to the Romans writes that uh, the problem with with the world is that people know God, but rather they they choose to serve and worship the creature rather than the Creator. And so in Romans chapter um, yeah, 1 verses 21 to 23 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then he goes on and says, And for this reason the wrath of God came upon them, and He turned them over to their corruption. And here's the thing that Paul is saying. This was you! That was you, you Galatians. And yet God did not pour out His wrath upon you. He did not turn you over to that. In fact, He sent Paul and Barnabas as missionaries to free you from this. Don't you understand? You were in line for God's wrath. And instead of God's wrath, He sent Paul and Barnabas with the gospel. And now you want to go back. This is why Paul concludes this chapter with, I'm perplexed. I I, I don't get it. I don't understand. You used to worship these false gods. And God, instead of judging you, sent the gospel to free you. And and now you want to go back to some sort of merit-based religion, some sort of earn your way to salvation. I'm perplexed. I don't get that. So, folks, this is not just... 
a message that has application in the first century when Paul wrote this, but it has application to us because Paul is describing for us or affirming for us that conversion to Christ means that we break with the false gods of our surrounding culture. And I know that probably most of us today do, well, I don't, most of us today probably do not fall down before an image. Though there are, there are many, and as our world becomes more, and our, and our communities become more, more multicultural, um, this does happen. I have a student in, in my class, and he was explaining that um, in, in his culture, and many of the immigrants who are coming, that they set up, and they, they have idols that they worship, and they fall down, and they present food to that, to that idol, and um, this is part of his missionary this is part of his outreach that's very foreign to me but it's very real and as our world becomes smaller and we become uh, more pluralistic we need to be aware that many people do worship this but, but probably most of us um, don't bow down to an image and call it an idol and think that it's God but don't think for a moment that we are free from the idolatry from which Paul deals with in Colossians chapter 3 Verses 5 through 6, Paul says, Therefore consider yourselves, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. In other words, he's saying covetousness is idolatry. Desiring that which is not yours, that which God has not given you, is idolatrous. Do not, it's the tenth commandment, and do not covet, do not desire your neighbor's house or his donkey or his wife or any of the things that your, that your neighbor may have. These things do not belong to you. God will give you all the things that he has called. But, you know, we set up... I heard somebody talking about how they had the best lawn in the neighborhood. Do you covet your neighbor's lawn? I'm not joking. Do you? You know? People do. Perhaps you're more likely to to covet their house or their spouse or their or their new mountain bike. That only applies to probably one person here. No names will be mentioned. But idolatry then is worshiping and putting in our lives that which is not God and prioritizing that thing as God. Whether it is our household, our our position, our possessions that when we place them before Almighty God, when we spend more time um, honoring our possessions than we do honoring our Savior, maybe we need to reprioritize a few things. And, and if God is convicting somebody here, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's time to start thinking about um, the idols in our lives. And so Paul begins this passage in Galatians Chapter 4, verse 8, saying, In the past, in the past, this is what you were. And then he says in verse 9, But now, now he brings it to, to the present day, but now that you have come to know God. In other words, a reversal has taken place. You used to be pagan idolaters who worshipped these false gods that were non-gods. That's how you were. But now something has happened. Now a reversal has taken place. 
And, and the, the freedom that comes with that reversal, this freedom that comes from knowing the true God, which frees us from these false, these empty or sham gods. The gospel has come. Jesus has been publicly displayed before them. Their situation has changed. Now that you have come to, but now that you've come to know God, God saw that you were worshiping idols, and instead of pouring out His wrath, He sent missionaries to come and proclaim to you the gospel. And you received the gospel, and you were idolaters. But now, you know God. And then Paul quickly corrects himself, and he says, ah, rather that you are known by God. In other words, this is a very important aspect of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now that you have known God, or rather have been known by God, this idea, this divine initiative is an important aspect to Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's actually um, important beyond the book of Galatians, but it is frequent in the book of Galatians, and that is that God takes the initiative in our salvation. And I know that this is sometimes a, uh, a disputed issue in, amongst Christians, but we hold firmly that God takes the initiative in salvation. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, that is that in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of God. It is God who calls you. And then later in verse 15, um, Paul says that God called him, that He was called before He was even born. Romans eight twenty nine through 30 tells us that for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many and those whom he predestined he called and those he called he justified and those he justified he glorified notice that everybody everybody that he called he justified and everybody he justified he glorified and so God takes the initiative in our salvation Paul confirms this by saying that I was called before I was even born while I was still in my mother's womb I was called before I had a chance to make a decision God called me in chapter 5 verse 8 God calls you and this call is a call to freedom folks I want you to understand that God calls elect sinners to grace who were once dead because of their trespasses and sins and he makes them alive together that's Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 you who were dead because of your trespasses and sins God made alive together with him you have been saved by Grace. It is God who takes the initiative in salvation. And this, folks, is so important for us to understand. This is a divine initiative of grace that is God's unmerited favor. It is God's unmerited favor because you did nothing to merit it. He did not see that somehow you would be faithful at some point and then on the basis of your foreseen faithfulness choose you. He chose you because He chose you. 
It is God's sovereign will to do it. And you say, well, I don't don't know how that works. I don't know how it works either. All I know is bow my knee before my Heavenly Father and give Him praise and thanks for rescuing me from the domain of darkness and transferring me into the kingdom of of light. And as a result, I will go out and tell other beggars where to find bread. I don't know what else to do. Folks, this implication of the divine initiative is so important for us because what it does is this, that God's initiative in our salvation excludes any type of moralism as a means of justification. And when I'm talking about justification, once again, I'm talking about God's declaration that you are not guilty. God, the highest judge in the land, when he declares you not guilty, you are not guilty. And God takes the initiative in that. And this idea of the divine initiative excludes this moralism, this idea that somehow this belief that the gospel can be reduced to my behavior, that we gain God's approval by my behavior. In other words, just be good enough and God will love you. In fact, probably people in this church, and I guarantee you, your neighbors hold to a moralistic view of salvation. I guarantee you, if you were to ask your neighbors, do you think you will go to heaven when you die? And if they believe in heaven, they will say yes. And if you ask them why, 99% of them are going to tell you because I am a good person. And that is a moralistic view of salvation, that God will save me because I am a good person. Person, And this idea of the divine initiative excludes moralism as a means of justification. That God does not save you because you are a good person. God saves filthy, rotten sinners like me. And He transforms them for reasons I have no idea. We do not gain God's approval by our behavior. In fact, the Bible would tell us that all of our righteous deeds are filthy rags. In fact, he would say that whatever is not done of faith is sin. So all the good deeds that we do, but we don't do it in faith to honor and glorify God, it is sin. Because we're doing it for some other reason, to earn God's favor. Paul, that's what the whole book of Galatians is about. He says that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. And that we are justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Folks, I want you to understand, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Paul goes in Romans, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who does good. And he just goes through this litany of really bad news. That's where he goes. See, Paul understands, and we need to understand with Paul, because this is a divine message straight from God himself, that we can neither keep God's commandments and we cannot love him purely apart from his overcoming grace. In fact, let me ask you this. Two great great commandments. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Have you done that today? Let me ask you, have you done that today? I'll tell you right now, I haven't. I have not loved God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength today. I probably love myself a little bit more. Somewhere along the way. It's not even 11 o'clock yet. To my benefit, I've been up for a while though, so <laughs> been up since five, so I've didn't sleep in. And I've probably not loved my neighbor as myself. 
And we cannot keep those commandments by our own self-effort, our own abilities. And the only way we can do anything is by God's overpowering grace. John tells us in 1 John 4.4, I'm sorry, 1 John 4.10, he tells us, "In In this is love, not that we loved God, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. When did God send His Son to be the propitiation of our sins? When we were still not loving Him. That's an amazing thing. We did not love God. And what was God's response to our not loving Him? I will send my Son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sin. So that while you are yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's what He did. This is God taking the initiative in your salvation. This is an amazing truth. Because then we begin to see grace. And that we are saved by grace. And all that grace can do is drop you to your knees and cause you to fall on your face and say, Praise God, praise God. I don't know what, I don't understand this, but God has saved me by grace. It is unmerited favor. The divine initiative rules out moralism as a means for justification. But the divine initiative also rules out mysticism as a means of justification. That is, man can never find God regardless of the spiritual exercises or religious techniques he may employ. So, well, I'll go on a pilgrimage or I'll meditate on a single syllable word like om for a while or I'll empty my mind or I will sit in, a, in an uncomfortable position or I will do whatever in order to enable me to find God because we are dead in our trespasses and sins there, Paul again says in Romans there is none who seeks God always kind of puzzles me about so-called seeker-friendly churches because Paul says nobody seeks God. I consider this a seeker-friendly church because I believe that God seeks sinners. And we will exalt God who seeks out the lost. And we will present a God who seeks out people. That's who we will try to present. That's who we will try to lift up. But that's a rabbit trail that I'm not going to go down any further. But mysticism is not a means. By I, I remember we were in a Brentwood, California, doing some witnessing on the streets. All the UCLA students down there, and everybody in Brentwood looks like they just walked out of a magazine, like a GQ magazine or a Cosmo magazine. If you're a woman, man. If you're GQ, they're all perfectly groomed. Everybody's attractive. Everybody drives their daddy's BMW and convertible top down, and they are all. And I remember talking to a gentleman, and he says, Well, I searched for God and I did not find him, so I do not believe in God. You can keep your searching all day long. You can do all sorts of mystical techniques and all sorts of spiritual things, but God will find you. When Adam sinned, where was Adam? He was gone. It was God who sought out Adam. Adam, where are you? God is the missionary. The very first missionary in the Bible is God himself seeking out Adam. Adam, where are you? Oh, and he found him all right. And so, folks, if you think that somehow by moralism or mysticism you are going to find God, it is God's divine initiative 
that brings us to him. I was not, my testimony, I was not seeking God when he found me. I was pretty happy with my life. I liked my life. I was doing pretty well. Um, and I, li- I think I had a decent future in front of me. I was going, going along. I was perfectly happy with where I was. I was not lying face down in the gutter. Pretty happy. And God shook me to the core one night and ruled out everything else and demonstrated that He was Lord of all. And I could do nothing, nothing at that moment but to say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. That was God taking the divine initiative in my life. And so Paul is saying, you used to be idol worshippers, but now God, now you have come to know God, or even more accurately, um, God has known you. And then he asks, how would you then turn back to weak and worthless things? Well, that's a really good question. How could you turn back to things that are weak and worthless? And I was just reminded of, of Esau, who was willing to sell his birthright, the most valuable thing he had for a bowl of stew. And I think that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, how is it that you have this unbelievable, valuable inheritance that has been given to you free of charge and now you're saying well thanks but no thanks I think I'll go back to the slave master who I used to serve Paul is like going how can you do that that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever why would you return why would an heir of all of the promises of God go back to slavery these elemental things basically you used to serve non-gods that could not save and now you're going to serve legalism that cannot save you basically traded slave masters but you're still enslaved do you see what Paul's going on saying you used to serve non-gods you used to serve this pantheon of Roman deities they couldn't save you you got delivered from them you became a child of God now you hear this message and it's tempting you to go back to legal to this idea of legalism that by if I follow the rules, God will exalt me. Legalism or paganism, it's all slavery. They're just different slave masters. So it would be like a, a slave getting redeemed out of the slave market and brought in and adopted into a family and made an heir and then saying, well, I'm going to go back, but I'm not going to go back to my old slave master, but his neighbor, the guy next door. That's the guy. I'm good. So that doesn't make any sense. He's just as wicked and just as cruel and just as, 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 as mean and just as inhumane. Meanwhile, you're a child in my house and I've given you everything. I'm sure that the Judaizers, whom Paul was, um, who were the, the, Paul's antagonists, were probably shocked when he equated legalism with paganism, but he said it's all the same. It's slavery and bondage. Meanwhile, I've given you the gospel that has set you free. And you're serving these days and months and seasons and years. In other words, you know, you're, you're being told that you need to worship on these particular days and observe these particular seasons and do these particular things. And then God will have mercy and favor upon you. And that is the means, that is the, um, the stairway which you must climb in order to achieve God's pleasure. You've turned back from being dependent upon the Spirit and you have 
now returning back to dependent upon self and whether the dependence upon self is pagan, pagan idolatry or legalism it's still dependence upon your own self for your own salvation see the people again they are using God's law, law as a ladder for heaven to get into heaven please understand I believe that God's law is good Make no mistake about it. I think that God's law is good. Paul says the law is good when it's used lawfully. And it was designed as a means of exposing our sin and our unrighteousness. And I believe that in its um, original state, it was an act of faith to follow God's law. That you follow God's law as a, as a response to God's word. And, and you believe that this animal that you're sacrificing is that God is going to accept it in your place so that you would be forgiven. In other words, it is the innocent dying for the guilty. And you believe by faith that by doing this, God will forgive you. That's faith. That's what we believe. But what had happened is by the time the first century comes around, that they had lifted up these laws to be not an act of faith, not a a means of pointing towards a Savior, but rather it was the means by which one attained righteousness. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a legalism, not... um, using the law or obeying the law or looking to the law as God intended it to be. Paul calls the law good, but it needs to be used lawfully. When it's used unlawfully, it becomes a means of self-righteousness and at that point it becomes a horrific thing. And so they are using God's law as their ladder to heaven. Their assurance of acceptance by God is not by the Spirit of God, but by their, um, their adherence to the legalistic requirements that these Judaizers were piling on. See, you'll recall last week that Paul says that God sent forth His Spirit into our hearts by which we cry out, Abba, Father. It is the Spirit of God that in us that assures us that we are the children of God. We get saved. God fills us with His Spirit. And it is by His Spirit that we are assured that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And now what these people are doing is they're tempted to move away from that and say, no, I'm a son or a daughter of the Most High God because I worship on the right day and I fulfilled this particular requirement and I got circumcised and I eat the right food. And Paul is saying, I'm perplexed. I don't get it. Why would you go back to that? Why would you even consider that? So the false teachers are luring uh, the Galatians away from faith in Christ to these basic elementary principles of the world which had formerly enslaved them. And then Paul, in verse 11, says this, I fear for you. I fear for you. Have Have I labored in vain? This, by the way, is the pastor's great fear. Pastor's great fear is, and probably the hardest thing on, on probably every pastor that I know, is to work hard for the spiritual well-being of people and seeing them turn away. Most pastors I know do not mind hard work. Most pastors and ministers, lay people also. I remember there's a a gentleman I spent about a year and a half with we met on a weekly basis. And we talked about the gospel and and today 
he would consider the church on Ram a place, a great place. And if he knew that you went there, he would consider you great friends right off the bat. And he would consider Simone and I honorable people. He's living a life that is so far from Christ, you cannot imagine it. And it still grieves. It's like, really? What happened in that year and a half? Did nothing happen? Did I spend my time in vain? I know it wasn't in vain. But you have to ask yourself, what was that year and a half? Every week. Is that for nothing? Oh, I pray that he comes back and returns to the Lord. And it's part of the cry of a parent, of any parent. You raise your kids and you raise them right and then you see them go off an errand. And you're going, really? Is that what happened? Did I raise you in that way? Did anything I ever said sink in? And so Paul's great pastoral cry, I fear for you. Was, was my work among you in vain? There is no salvation except in Christ. To trade paganism for legalism is a fool's transaction. Trading one kind of slavery for another kind of slavery, it, it doesn't advance you. And legalism will make you externally improve. It will improve you externally. It will make you a nicer person, perhaps more well-dressed, perhaps kinder, a smile on your face. But I will tell you this, Satan loves the person who keeps the Ten Commandments provided they take credit for them. And many of your friends are thinking that God loves them because they're good people. And many people sitting in churches today think that God loves them because of their moral behavior or because of their church attendance or because of the work that they do in the church or because they volunteer at the soup kitchen or because they are preachers or because they go on missions. Um, And if those things, if church attendance, church work, feeding people at the soup kitchen. If preaching, if going on missions is your hope of righteousness, demons rejoice if you are relying on them for your justification. They will not justify you. They should flow out of a justified individual. They are the appropriate response of one who has been justified, but they do not justify you. And so Paul says, I fear because I brought the truth and is it being rejected? So let me conclude with this. God sent forth His Son to redeem us. God sent forth His Son to adopt us and to make us heirs. And God has sent forth His Spirit by which we cry out, into a Spirit into our hearts by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That is a gift of God. I want you to understand that God's redemption, adoption, inheritance, and filling with the Spirit is God's gift to you. I want you to believe this. If you believe that God will save you by grace alone, through faith alone, in the merits of Christ alone, you will be saved. And when you are saved, the Spirit of God will come and fill you so that you might live out the life of Christ through you. This is what Paul says back in Galatians chapter 2. Verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ 
And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. He said, Christ saved me. He put His Spirit in me. And the life that I now live is not me trying to earn favor with God, but it's Jesus Christ Himself through His Spirit living His life through my hands and my feet and my words and my thinking. It is Christ living in me. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the Christian life. Please do not think that I am saying that the Christian life is not one that has good deeds, but the good deeds are one are the deeds done in response to God's unmerited, unearned favor that he has given to us. It is not the means by which we achieve God's favor. So folks, we enter into the life of God by faith we continue on in faith whatever is not of faith is sin and we do good deeds as the outflow of the spirit filled life it is not the means of attaining spirit filled life it is the outflow of the individual who has the spirit of God dwelling within them and so if you are worshipping the idol of self reliance of self justification of self salvation today is the day to set that idol aside make a clean break with it and turn away from that idol it will never save you if you are trying to seek God through an idol of mysticism well if I just go on a pilgrimage or if I say the right things or meditate or something like that then God will have favor on me it is time to lay that idol aside it is it, it is it has eyes but it cannot see and ears but it cannot hear and a mouth and it cannot speak and it can never save you but Jesus Christ the righteous right now ascended in heaven sitting at the right hand of the Father has propitiated made remedy for your sin and he will save you if you cry out to him and if right now you have this idea I need to cry out to God I want you to know that's God's divine initiative working in your heart enabling you to cry out to him do not reject that but rather call out to him now if that's what you would like to do please speak with me speak with my wife speak with Jaime um, speak with Nelson we would love to share with you about what it means to follow the living God and live in freedom not in bondage to self-righteousness let's stand and let's pray